Welcome to another episode of Ace Talking. I am your co-host, Connor McNamara Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. We've got some excellent poems, as usual. Well, actually, just one poem. But in a way, this one is in three parts. So maybe it approaches the plural. The three parts are definitely different enough to... They could almost be a little three-poem triptych. Triptych, I like it. Yeah. A larger work. Um, Yeah, this poem for today is called Nursing Home, and it's by Vijay Seshadri. Um, And this comes from his collection, Three Sections, which won the Pulitzer Prize in... I gotta look this up. This is horrible. 2014. Fun fact. He's an Oberlin alum, so. So you're in good company. Yeah, we're doing good. When uh, when do you plan on winning a Pulitzer Prize? Oh dear. Uh, 2021, 2023. <laughs> yeah, maybe the 2070s if the Pulitzer Institution still exists, which, well, I guess I hope it does. Fingers um, crossed. Yeah, but I, I have a question based on the title of that book. Yes. Are there other poems in it divided into three parts? How important are threes to this work in general? Just before we read it. That was a great question. It's like barely even split into three parts. It's not even like one, two, three, but there's not really, it's actually a really weird book. It reads just like a bunch of poems. And then there's, I think what might be the second section is this long, basically prose personal essay uh, that's about, it's called Pacific Fishes of Canada. And it's just about when he was like in the Pacific Northwest on a fishing boat. But it's very interesting. And then the end, sort of the last is a long poem called Personal Essay, which is, you know, maybe close to 20, 15, 20 pages. That's fascinating. Yeah, and, and the tone is very, it ends, there's this, you know, there's this really intense personal essay, long poem that, like, gets at, you know, who am I, really, like, what is consciousness, etc. You gets you in a trance. But then that very last poem, which is right after that, is called Light Verse. And it's just like a little ditty about, like, the first line is, it's just five, but it's light, like six. It's lighter than we think. And it's in this rhyming form, and it feels like very fluffy. But his good stuff is so good. And I really like this one poem, uh, Nursing Home, which, as we've said, is split into three parts. And they are very different in style. And so I will read them. Nursing Home. One. She had dreams 50 years ago she remembers on this day. She dreamed about Bombay. It looked like Rio. She dreamed about Rio, which looked like itself, though Rio was a city she'd never seen, not on TV, not in a magazine. Brain scans done on her show, her parasylvian pathways and declivities choked by cities, microscopic mercurial cities made from her memories, good and bad from the things she saw but didn't see, from the remembered pressure of every lover she ever had. 
too. Unexpected useful combinations between cognitive psychology and neuroscience have fostered new observational protocols, not only for elderly patients in the Lewy body pathologic subgroup, but those discovered across a wide spectrum of dementias and dementia-induced phenomena, including but not limited to normal pressure, hydrocephalus, classical Alzheimer's disease, and the deformations in mental recognition and function. Dear, eat the soup with the spoon, not the fork. And the coruscating visions, who is that laid out in my bed? The spontaneous, the spontaneous motor features of Parkinsonism. Synaptic patterns embodied in sparks, showers, electrical cascades, waterfalls, and shooting stars are increasingly revealing an etiology approximately to be fully established and suggestive links between processes strictly biochemical and ideational and linguistic explosions for which documentation has been massive while analysis so has so far been scant. While an adequate conceptual apparatus still remains out of reach, progress across a broad frontier of research has been sufficiently dramatic to suggest possible developments that will lead both to therapeutic remedies for distressed elderly patients and to a synthesis among various disciplines that have heretofore seemed not just incompatible, but in direct conflict with one another. Certain coherencies have been unearthed that have truly startled our consensus. Three, she doesn't know any better than to act the fool. Is she dead? No, she's not dead. Is she dead? No, I'm not dead, and I don't want anybody to think I'm dead. Do you think it's funny? Wonder why she acts like that. Is she dead? No, she's not dead, and I'm not dead either. Is she really dead? No, she's not dead, but she's acting the fool. Are you really dead? No, I'm not really dead. I'm just acting the fool. I'll show you how I can act the fool. No, I don't think I look nice. I think I look purdy. No, I'm not dead. I just act like I'm dead. What makes you want to act like she's dead? Do you think she's dead? Do you think she's dead or is she just acting the fool? Wow. Pretty strange stuff. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I have so many thoughts. Oh my god. When I read this poem and hearing you read it. I mean, I read it aloud. One of my one of the ways I always read these is I usually read them aloud to myself, but hearing you read it aloud, particularly that third section, the you becomes accusatory in a certain way that is yeah. very different than when you're reading it aloud yourself and are the accusor. It makes it so much punchier. It adds this quasi-aggressive confrontational tone that fits neatly with how I initially started putting together a reading of the poem, which is that the first part of it is sort of a poetic account of dementia or mental deterioration. The second part is like a medical scientific account. And the third part is a personal account, either from the viewpoint of someone who has it or someone who's viewing someone who has it. My personal reading is that it's somebody who has these going on, who feels almost a separation from herself and is almost in conversation with herself and with those around her in this sort of fractured, fluid consciousness sort of way. But the strength of that accusation, either if it's the individual with it, sort of accusing themselves and getting frustrated with their inability to think through something simple, 
or with someone who's caring for them becoming frustrated and distraught at the condition that they see manifested was just really powerful in hearing you read it as opposed to just reading it on the page or having myself read it aloud. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that makes me think, yeah, that I like starting with that because one of the, I think that you've pointed out the most striking aspects of this is the way the voice is. So you mentioned part one as like a sort of poetic account of someone with dementia, the second being medical, the third being personal dialogue. It's sort of like a play. There was a review in uh, American Poetry Review that referred to it as sort of Beckett-like um, in its absurd repetitions. But those manifest themselves in terms of voice. What makes the the second one medical or clinical is its medical voice and the, the diction that it uses. And similarly, the um, the voice of the first one with its its lineated structure, but its its sounds, um, etc., is is a matter of voice. Um, and then that's so interesting that the third you talk about you hearing it from me versus you reading it uh, because that's sort of the game that it's playing is like you don't actually know who's talking and you know that different people are talking but it's it's a section of multiple voices although they also all sound like the same voice yeah um, the voice calls so much conspicuous attention to itself but it's still so hard to pin down but i don't even in the first section it could be easily the same person or the same viewpoint speaking as the third section but it does not feel that way there's still all of these she's and, you know, it seems to be outside, but it just doesn't feel that way at all. Because all of a sudden you have all of the eyes that become interspersed. And now there's I and she almost as one unit. And all of that kind of language is just stripped out of the second part. And it becomes this completely clinical, almost like a textbook or yeah. a medical journal. With like a few very strange exceptions. There's the... Synaptic and patterns embodied in sparks, showers. Electrical cascades, waterfalls, and shooting stars are increasingly revealing. And and the like deer, the parenthetical deer eat the soup with the spoon, not the fork. Who is that? And then the, who is that laid out in my bed? So there is uh, also like an uncanniness to parts of that voice. And it's interesting, this was pointed out to... Uh, in a different review, I think the green in Green Mountains review of it. So in the first section, blind goes brain scans done on her show, her parasylvian pathways and declivities choked by cities, which is a great few lines. Um, but I was like, I don't know what parasylvian is at all, and I really tried to look it up. It took me a long time, and I eventually got to what this review put in more succinct terms that it's kind of the, the speech center of the brain that there's a strong language component and so there's her pathways in her brain that have to do with speech are being choked by cities and the cities part is very evocative in terms of the what came before we have bombay dreaming about bombay and dreaming about rio even though she doesn't really know about Rio, but that there's a imposition of something onto the speech. And so it that makes me think about discrepancies between voice. Uh, it seems to draw attention to the various and so, like incomplete ways we have about talking about dimension. The second section is very clear because I think 
I don't know, this is an experience I have where I read those things and I'm just like, what the, f I don't know, what's happening? What, <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, what the fuck, what's being said? Um, but at the same time, it it parades itself as like a neutral tone language or a language that has no personality because it's the language of science or the language of medicine. And it's um, interesting in contrast, it is, sort of linguistically the hardest to penetrate, but it is the part that is supposed to be giving you information. The rest of it is supposed to be giving you, you know, information and emotion, and it's clearly a poem, but the part of the poem that sort of mirrors this textbooky, medical journal-y, clinical language that is supposed to be like explaining to you what's happening is actually the part that's not helping at all because you're like, what, I have to look up what half of these words are and yeah. the way that you've mashed all of these words together, even the ones I understand are in places that I don't appreciate. <laughs> you know? I know, I know. Um, yeah. I wanted to hop back to the cities that you mentioned, because I love the mentions of Bombay and Rio in the beginning part. And I had a couple of thoughts because it is the speech centers that they're talking about getting built up with these cities. And so it made me think that in her head, like she's from Bombay or she remembers Bombay, but when she talks about it, she's saying the word Rio. Ah, that's what I got from it. I don't know if that's accurate in the slightest, but to me, like just having known some people with these types of issues, like all of a sudden a certain word, they just can't say it for no yeah. apparent reason. Or, you know, it turns into a different word every time they say it. All of a sudden a fork is a spoon or a knife is a flamingo. Like it just, <laughs> that's the word that's now what it is. But also the idea of cities being what clog it, having the double meaning of, because it calls out, what is it? The Lewy body sub, Lewy body pathologic subgroup. And Lewy bodies are these protein buildups, city buildup, uh, uh, ah. that cause these sorts of slow mental deteriorations. And so I thought bringing in the concept of cities, saying it was cities that are clogging her uh, sort of abilities here. And then immediately at the beginning of this clinical section, throwing in that this is the Lewy body pathologic subgroup was an interesting resonance. Yeah, that's so cool. That's like, cause it's like, so when you're talking about metaphor, there's like the thing that you're trying to describe. And so the thing that's, in some way, it's like, this is like a metaphor that's like coming, being, it's not just like a double layered metaphor, but it's like being come at from two different directions. So there's, yeah. it works. Cities is a great like metaphor and image for the Louis subgroup, as you're saying, like it's a good sort of way to think about it in that way. But then from the other end, cities is a good actual like clog, like in a, in the literal sort of the way that she's expressing herself in the nursing home, which I think is just why this poem is so good is that that's such a implied move that he makes because the Louis body doesn't come in until the second section at all. And so the first section is just the brain scans choked by cities, which you then immediately think of the first part, the Rio and the Bombay, and then only in the second section in a voice also that's like completely not about to make metaphor is the one that's landing that second part of the metaphor. So that's, yeah, that's really cool. And I like too how there's just, I mean, he's very funny. He loves rhyming in a way that sometimes actually seems 
traditional in a way that's like not hip, which is like a weird thing for me to say. But like in the first section, there's a lot of end rhymes, which are kind of like, I don't know, it's awkward, but. She remembers um, on this day, she dreamed about Bombay. Yeah, it looked like Rio. She dreamed about Rio, which looked like itself though. And then line break, Rio was a city she'd never seen. Line break, not on TV, not in a magazine. And then we get another O, brain scans done on her show. And then there's like all these E's. And what's kind of cool is that he's rhyming declivities, like her Paris Sylvian pathways and declivities choked by cities, microscopic mercurial cities made from her memories. And then there's an ad rhyme. So good and bad from the things she saw but didn't see from the remembered pressure of every lover she ever had. So bad comes to had. Um, and then there's an internal, like remembered pressure of every lover she ever had. So that is very tight. You also get yeah. the line from the things she saw but didn't see going back to microscopic mercurial cities made from her memories. The C yeah. goes right back to the EEE -E -E section too. Exactly. For some reason, declivities is the is my favorite rhyme part because that's the least poetic word I could ever think of. And by choosing that and then emphasizing the sort of sound of it, he's drawing out a tonality to the word that no one would ever put in there. The fact that declivities can be paired with cities and memories, which are which are sort of more common. At least for me, it gets me as a reader to sort of perk my ears up and pay more attention. Not that I'm not always, you know, reading with attention, but it's like uh, Warren Zevon as a musician is my favorite example of this because he'll <laughs> write a song called Porcelain Monkey about Elvis Presley and throw in the word regicidal or he'll write Mr. Bad Example about a guy who just like does a bunch of sins and he'll throw in Naugahyde Divan. <laughs> And it's like these words that are great words. They're really cool words. They don't really show up in rock music, but when they do, and when they're in the hands of a skilled songwriter, it feels like it fits perfectly. Like it doesn't call out to me as being wrong. It calls out to me as being interesting. Yeah. So the way Declivities does here, it's not necessarily a super poetic word, but it feels like the right word. Yeah, exactly. And it hints at uh, the, the more clinical uh, language to come in the second section. Going back to the Louis body um, part, because part two sounds, I think, probably when I read it, just sounded like gibberish. Uh, but it actually is saying something specific about, you know, whether or not it's scientifically right. It's making um actually a fairly clear claim that has implications for the poem that that there's combinations between cognitive psych and neuroscience um, that basically are leading to new understandings you know of dementias dementia induced phenomena etc but this line i think has so between processes strictly biochemical and ideational and linguistic explosions for which documentation has been massive, while analysis has so far been scant. And then while an adequate conceptual apparatus still remains out of reach, um, and then there's sort of like hope for the future or something. And then this is interesting too, and to a synthesis among various disciplines that have heretofore seemed not just incompatible, but in direct conflict with one another. There's a way to read those 
things as a the problem that the poem itself is intervening into that there's the problem of language is a problem of analysis. So there's lots of documentation about dementia, but no one really has a good consensus or sense about like why it is the way it is. And then that these disciplines are not just incompatible, but in direct conflict with one another. All of these sections, the three sections, feel incompatible with one another. And so what Vijay Sashadri is doing is putting not necessarily cognitive psych and neuroscience together, but putting the lyric poem, the medical diction, and the sort of absurdist play dialogue in conjunction, which we then have to force to consider together rather than in discrete ways. And isn't that how the experience of mental illness always goes? There's the combination of trying to understand it medically and find the best treatments but there's also the personal experience of being with the person who is struggling with whatever the challenge is. I mean, that's those are the two things that are inextricably linked in the experience of it, both for the person who's experiencing it and for their loved ones. Definitely. Which um, makes this sort of an interesting holistic description of that experience in some ways. Yeah, and maybe we can think more about this. I'm, I'm pretty with the poem for the first two sections. We have, she had dreams 50 years ago. We have a speaker, you know, maybe this is the speaker's mother. We don't know, but someone probably related to the speaker because the speaker is there in the nursing home with her. And there's a real, I, I feel like there's a, a poignancy at the end of the first section, you know, that made from her memories, good and bad, from the things she saw but didn't see, from the remembered pressure of every lover she ever had. There's such a weight of personal history and love that emerges from the end of the first section that feels lost or distorted because of her mental state. That seems, you know, very sad, and, and the speaker is able to observe that. And then there's a move to the medical that's this is where we are in terms of like objectively understanding the situation and then the third section it's just it's like funny and also like really jarring because it's not just there's the shifts as jack pointed out that like the shifts from the eyes and the u's and like you know like no i'm not dead i don't want anyone to think i'm dead like, I'll show you how I can act the fool. What makes you want to act like she's dead? That, the twirling position of the voice is disorienting. But also there's so much repetition of acting the fool. Is she dead? The words become flat. I mean, the words itself become dead. In the first time that it's like, she doesn't know any better than to act the fool. I'm like, okay, I know that phrase, to act a fool. That, that could be a description of a really insensitive description of someone with dementia. But then by the end, there's just been so many fools and deads. They have no reference anymore. And now that I'm articulating that, that makes sense in terms of the project insofar as part of it is attempting to expand or uh, collect our various languages for talking about this subject, but then part of the other project perhaps is because language is, is failing, 
let me just barrage you so many times with the same shit that people say so many times that you feel the deadness that the language actually has in terms of saying anything. And you start to feel in some way as the reader, the separation between language and meaning that is happening for the person with dementia. Yeah. Um, and I think I, I puzzled initially over the repetition of the, you know, is she dead? Am I dead thing? Because like clearly this person's not dead, but to me it got down to the question of, you know, how much are we still alive as ourselves when our minds are gone? Where is self and how do you know if this person is there or not? Their body is there, but if their mind is gone, if they don't know who you are to them, if they don't know what anything is around them, are they still themselves? Are they dead? That seems to be the question he's going after in this last part of it, to me anyway. My only other thought is that it reminded me of the stellar episode of the now Netflix series Black Mirror, San Junipero. Uh, that is from the newest season, the one where the elderly woman in the nursing home takes part in a program that will upload your consciousness into a dream scenario, and you can pick the place where you want to go. And it's this seaside town called San Junipero that is entirely populated by dead people. It is, I think, a piece of art that is interestingly ruminating on some of the same questions and ideas. And... Not for nothing, beautiful episode of television, one of the best out there. And because it's an anthology series, you can just drop on in and watch it and not even worry about it. So if you're <laughs> interested, check it out on Netflix. Shout out Black Mirror. It's the rare episode of the show that doesn't leave you terrified about the future of humanity and really distressed about the world. That was my vibe. I was like, oh my God. Mm -hmm. Bringing it out in terms of poems generally, I like this example because when we talked about the great Emily Dickinson and her prairies, we were talking a little bit about how she's saying three contradictory statements and how that creates gaps and the incoherencies or the contradictions sort of open up space and, and make the poem feel full. I feel like this is another version of that, but on a different scale, that instead of incoherent proclamations, we have incoherent voices that are made adjacent to one another. Because it's just language on a page and, and it's just a speaker speaking a song or whatever, and there's less demand for something like narrative or something, which not that there aren't fragmented prose narratives, but the opportunity for jarring juxtapositions of things as big as voice are opportunities that I feel like poems have that other forms of literature and art have a harder time doing. They certainly don't do it as regularly. And then there's the question of, you know, what is the language of poetry? Poem language is always changing, of course, but because of the passage of time, Dickinson sounds like natural poem language to me. And I think this is a good example of a poet being very resourceful in the different languages available to him and putting in medical terminology and putting in bare, jokey language dialogue, rhyming declivities, saying the word purdy, spelling it out, P-U-R-T-Y, Holy smokes. I would have expected it to be with a D-Y, personally. That actually gave me some pause, both because of the word and because it's per D, friend. I don't know anyone who's per T. <laughs> True. He really, he screwed the pooch on that one. 
wouldn't go that far. <laughs> like when I see somebody writing that word out, it's usually mm. that they're like purdy. Yeah. Not purdy. <laughs> Even when you say purdy, it doesn't sound, it sounds like you're saying it with a D. No, that's, I agree. I agree. But uh, that's besides the point. He's yeah, a great we'll, poet and he won the Pulitzer Prize. So I should probably just uh, run with it. Like, he's killing like, it. Roll, roll, with, roll with the brilliance. Um, roll with the brilliance. I think we got to read it again. Let's do it. All right. Nursing home. One. She had dreams 50 years ago. She remembers on this day. She dreamed about Bombay. It looked like Rio. She dreamed about Rio, which looked like itself, though. Rio was a city she'd never seen, not on TV, not in a magazine. Brain scans done on her show, her parasylvian pathways and declivities choked by cities, microscopic mercurial cities made from her memories, good and bad, from the things she saw but didn't see, from the remembered pressure of every lover she ever had. Two. Unexpected, useful combinations between cognitive psychology and neuroscience have fostered new observational protocols not only for elderly patients in the Lewy body pathologic subgroup, but those discovered across a wide spectrum of dementias and dementia-induced phenomena, including but not limited to normal pressure hydrocephalus, classical Alzheimer's disease, and the deformations in mental recognition and function. Dear, eat the soup with the spoon, not the fork. The coruscating visions. Who is that laid out in my bed? the spontaneous motor features of Parkinsonism, synaptic patterns embodied in sparks, showers, electrical cascades, waterfalls, and shooting stars are increasingly revealing an etiology proximately to be fully established and suggestive links between processes strictly biochemical and ideational and linguistic explosions for which documentation has been massive while analysis has so far been scant. While an adequate conceptual apparatus still remains out of reach, progress across a broad frontier of research has been sufficiently dramatic to suggest possible developments that will lead both to therapeutic remedies for distressed elderly patients and to a synthesis among various disciplines that have been heretofore seemed not just incompatible but in direct conflict with one another. Certain coherencies have been unearthed that have truly startled our consensus. Three. She doesn't know any better than to act a fool. Is she dead? No, she's not dead. Is she dead? No, I'm not dead, and I don't want anybody to think I'm dead. Do you think it's funny? Wonder why she acts like that. Is she dead? No, she's not dead, and I'm not dead neither. Is she really dead? No, she's not dead, but she's acting the fool. Are you really dead? No, I'm not really dead, I'm just acting the fool. I'll show you how I can act the fool. No, I don't think I look nice. I think I look purdy. No, I'm not dead. I just act like I'm dead. What makes you want to act like she's dead? Do you think she's dead? Do you think she's dead? Or is she just acting the fool? Thank you so much for listening. You can keep up with our news and other poetry book-related news at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at close talking. You can also talk to us at hot sauce boxed for me, Connor Stratton, or Jack at Jack Rossiter Munn. 
you have another reading of one of the poems we've discussed or have a suggestion for another poem, please shoot us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com.